All right, welcome back. This morning, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. And I'm going to invite Leland to come up and read this passage for us this morning. So if y'all could uh, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled under the foot, underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, that's our text this morning. And in verses 26 through 31, we see our fourth and final warning in the book of Hebrews. This book has been uh, powerful in its warnings to believers and its warnings to unbelievers as well. And you, you already understand the context of Hebrews, that it was written to those who were uh, under persecution, under those who were struggling, under those who were experiencing all these difficulties, and in the process of their trials, in the process of their persecutions, in the process of their difficulties, those who were genuine believers were tempted to walk away from the faith completely. That is, to, to reject Jesus, uh, to renounce their faith in Him, to uh, jump into the current culture, into the flow of the world, and to, to simply uh, renounce the name of Jesus. And so for those genuine believers, the author of Hebrews was saying you need to persist, you need to continue, uh, I urge you to continue by faith and to continue walking. That's the primary audience are those believers who are tempted to walk away from Jesus altogether. There's a secondary audience amongst the community that would have been hearing this letter read or hearing the speaker as he uh, spoke these words. Uh, And this secondary audience are those who are not yet believers. They've heard the truth, they've heard the gospel, they've sat amongst the community, Uh, they may have had a a cultural connection to the community of believers, but they weren't yet Christ followers. They had never given their life to Jesus, they'd never fully repented of their sins, they'd never trusted in Christ alone, and so they were somewhat on the sidelines watching And it's to that group that this warning is written. It's to that group that this letter encourages them to finally and fully place their trust in Jesus Christ. And we understand that it's it's easy for us to, to be a part of a culture. It's easy for us to attend a church and to be raised in a church. I myself was raised in a Catholic church for Uh, Four generations, there were a number of uh, Catholic, um, strong cultural uh, people in my family, where they went to Catholic high school and Catholic elementary school and middle school and daycare. And I mean, they were Catholic for life. Every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, we would rent out the 
the banquet hall at Mount St. Mary's in Oklahoma City, and all 40 of my aunts and uncles and cousins and uh, everybody would come together. And we would eat and we would play games and we would go to church together and we would do all those things. I was a functioning atheist without any real faith in God at all, and yet I fit comfortably into this Catholic culture. So we understand that that happens. We understand that you can be raised in a church. You can have a cultural um, connection to church. But we also understand that that is not to be confused with personal faith in Jesus. It's not to be confused with personal faith in Jesus. And you might be here this morning because church is what you do. But church attendance and being connected to church culturally is not the same as personal faith in Jesus Christ. It's not. And I say that really clearly as often as I can because I wouldn't want anybody to get to heaven and to say, Lord, why can't I come in? What, what is it that, what, why am I not allowed to be a part of eternity and a part of heaven and a part of your kingdom? And for Jesus to clearly say, as he did in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, that not everybody who says, Lord, uh, gets to be a part of the kingdom. He says, away from me, evildoers, I never knew you. Meaning, you never expressed personal faith in Jesus Christ and repented of your sins. So in this text, we see that there are those who go on sinning deliberately. We're going to get to what that means. That there is no longer an expectation that they will go to heaven, but there's an expectation of judgment and fire and consummation, punishment, vengeance, fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is the most cheerful passage, right? When I asked Leland to read it, he said, oh, <laughs> one of these kind of messages, but, but we don't dodge the text. I don't get to say I'm going to skip this passage because it's uncomfortable, right? This is part of what we do. We're people of the book, and the Word of God is the living Word of God. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, and so I don't get to pick and choose what I like to say and avoid parts that might make us feel uncomfortable. So I want us to understand this really clearly. Now this is just me talking. This is not. Uh, this is this is my opinion, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get to the text in just a second. But when I started Ridgeline Community Church about six or seven years ago, I filled out a document that I sent to partners all around the nation. It was a ministry plan. It described this area. It included demographics. It included um, the, our core team. It included our vision, how we wanted to reach people for Christ and walk with them to maturity. And it included all of those things. And one of the appendices in the back of that document described the next great awakening. And it was our, my hope, personally, I don't speak for everybody, but it was my hope that seven years ago, God would renew the nation. That He would sweep amongst the nation a work of revival and awakening. America has experienced um, three great awakenings, if you remember your American history. In the 1700s, there was the first great awakening. Uh, there was the second great awakening, also in the later 1700s. There was the great prayer revival of 1850s that... Uh, from that, over 20,000 churches were birthed around the nation. Uh, an enormous move of the Spirit of God, in which thousands and thousands and thousands of people were swept into the kingdom by the moving of the Holy Spirit. But 
That same type of movement happened in the Middle Ages, in the 1500s, the 1600s, the 1700s, uh, especially the 16th century in Germany with, uh, with Martin Luther, right? And he, he went up and he nailed the 95 Theses to the church door at the castle of Wittenberg. And in the process of that, we saw an enormous amount of spiritual growth among, in and around Europe. Uh, that sense in which God and the activity of the Holy Spirit can be summarized if you look at, you don't have to look there, but in John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, just like the wind blows where it pleases, and you don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know where it's going, in the same way, The concentrated work of the Holy Spirit blows where He pleases. That is, the work of God continues in different places. We don't always understand that, and we can't always see that, but what we can see is that in many ways, the document that I hoped for would come to fruition seven years ago, we have to understand, this is just me speaking, we have to understand that God might not bring a work of revival and awakening to America Again, in the same way that Europe, uh, that England and other places where the Spirit worked and worked and worked is, is no longer concentrating the extraordinary Holy Spirit moving of God in those places. Instead, now we see the concentration of the Spirit's work in places like India, in places like Iran, and in places like China and other parts of Asia. And we have to say, great! There are millions and millions of people who have never heard the Gospel that are being redeemed right now. All over those places. People who have grown up in a culture where the name of Jesus is not yet known, but is now becoming known. Those works of revival and awakening, while it uh, is incredibly encouraging that we see that happening in those places now, it, it, it bothers us a little bit. that we, we, It hurts that we don't see that happening here. As a matter of fact, you might hear more about people leaving the faith in America than you will hear about people coming to faith in Jesus in this period of time. <coughs> we might use words to describe the church in the next 10 years with words like remnant and faithful, right? We might describe the work of God as as, uh, concentrated and more potent. The church's expression, the church's uh, witness will be more potent in the sense that it will be purer, in the sense that the cultural kind of hangers-ons will have uh, abandoned the faith over this next decade or so. And so in the process of that, this church will become purer. The church in America will become more potent. It will be more conviction-led. But we also have to realize, you say, what does this have to do with us? We have to realize that we might see more people walking away from the faith in the short term. And this is nothing new for the church. When Jesus taught hard teachings in John chapter 6, It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, 
And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you see what happened there? In John 6, many walked away because the harder teachings. But others persisted deeper and said, where are we going to go? We have nowhere else to go but to persist deeper. You are the one with words of life. Years after that, the same John is writing in the epistle 1 John in chapter 2. And in this later years, years after Jesus had died and been resurrected and ascended to heaven, John writes in 1 John chapter 2, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. If you know your eschatology, there's big A Antichrist, one sort of world leader that will come in the end times, but there are many Antichrists, John points out. That is, those who deny that Jesus Christ is who He says He is. That's who John is talking about in 1 John 2, 18-27. We know it's the last hour, and in verse 19 he says, Those Antichrists, they went out from us, but they were never really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. In Mark chapter 14, the same John witnesses Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, go to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. That's Mark 14. Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This is all in the 90-year period of the New Testament. People would come to Christ. People would follow Christ. People would love Jesus. They would love the miracles that He did. They would love the fact that He healed the sick and taught people and that He healed the, uh, the lepers and He did all these incredible, amazing things. And so people loved Jesus for the things that He did. But when they heard the sacrifice and the requirement and the cost of faith, the cost of following Him, they turned away. We baptize new believers. And as we baptize new believers, there is the hope in all of us that says, I pray that they persist in faith. I pray that they persist. I pray that they don't walk away from the faith. And in Acts 18, when Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, he says, I, I pray that you continue in the faith, that you remain, that you continue to walk. This is what it was like in the most concentrated time in the history of the world when the Spirit of God was at work. This was in the New Testament era that believers who, or people who once walked with Jesus are now not any longer. And it just got worse in the years after, especially in the Roman Empire. There arose two priests in the third century. And I'm not going to dwell on all of church history, but I want to mention these two. Novatus and Novation. There was an entire group of people called the Lapsi, right? Have you heard the Lapsi? Uh, the Lapsi are the believers who apostate in the Roman Empire. They were those who, when the Roman Empire said, uh, do you believe in Jesus? Or would you renounce your faith? All you have to do is burn a little incense to this idol 
and walk away from Jesus forever and we won't take your life or we won't take your possessions or we won't take your business or we won't throw you in prison or whatever the punishment might have been. All they had to do was say, I don't believe in Jesus. It reminds me of a few years ago when you see um, men in black on the shores of North Africa with believers lined up on the shore and executioners there saying, will you renounce your faith in Jesus? Very similar situation. And those who said, I don't believe in Jesus any longer to escape persecution, those were the lapsed, the lapsi. Novatus, years after the persecution died down, welcomed them back in the fellowship if they were repentant believers. If they said, uh, we ask your forgiveness, they came into the church and they said, uh, 10 years ago when you lost your leaders, when you lost your faithful believers, I rejected Jesus so I could avoid that and, and I, I ask your forgiveness. And they would come back into the church and stand before a crowd like this and they would ask forgiveness and, and Novatus welcomed them back. Novation held a strict view that refused readmission to communion of the lapsi, those baptized believers who denied their faith or performed the formalities of a ritual sacrifice to pagan gods under the pressures of the persecution sanctioned by the emperor Decius in A.D. 250. They refused to welcome them back into the church. And Novationism was huge. It spread to every community. And it was basically that people said, I refuse to grant mercy and grace to those who walked away from Jesus during the period of persecution. History says that they were, uh, Novation was burned as a heretic <laughs> um, for the refusal to readmit repentant people. What does it have to do with us? Well, we're walking into possibly, the Lord can always bring revival and awakening, He can always do that at any time, and I pray that He does, but we're walking into a period in our culture, when it is no longer culturally acceptable for you to declare faith in Jesus Christ. For you to say that the Bible is the Word of God. For you to stand up and, and to declare your faith in Jesus. It, we're coming into days when it will cost you something. The ways in which we walk together in the future as a community of Christ followers, we will have to make decisions like Novatus and like Novation. And it's painful. It's hard to watch people who once walked with us and worshipped with us and led us and even taught Sunday school and even were a part of our worship community. It's hard to see them now stand up and say, I no longer believe anything that you're saying. There are people, understand, there are people in the room right now who are bristling at the worship of Jesus Christ. And hearing these words are saying, I, I don't know if I can believe this. We'll get to that in a second, but circling back around to our passage, we understand that if the audience that is hearing verses 26 through 31 is primarily directed at those who are not yet believers. They're watching the persecution. 
They're seeing all this play out. And they have a moment of decision coming. Do I place my faith in Jesus and stand up with the persecuted? Or do I walk away completely? And and believe me, you have to make that choice. You have to make that choice. To not decide is to decide. To push it off is to decide. To say, I'll do it later is to decide. And we see the warning very clearly here. I don't have to add a lot to this passage. Verse 26 says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that is, if you hear the gospel, that Jesus Christ loves you, that He died on the cross as a substitute, taking your punishment on Himself and giving you the righteousness that He possessed in exchange, If you hear those words, the gospel message, and if you hear that and say, I don't believe that, that is the deliberate sin for which there no longer remains a sacrifice. This is not for believers who struggle with sin. You read this passage and you think, "Ah, I willfully walked into that temptation. As a Christ follower, I knew it was wrong and I willfully did it. This is not talking about you. We have hammered the assurance of salvation over the last four months in this sermon series. This is clearly written to those who are unbelievers. How do we know that? Let's let's help us understand that. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This can't be talking to a believer, because if a believer sins, 1 John 1.9 says that there is forgiveness of sins and cleansing from all unrighteousness. John 3.17 says that there is no condemnation. God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Romans 8.1 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 10 says that no one can snatch them out of my hand. I, I know mine and they know me. Uh, and nothing can snatch them away. And so for the believer in Christ, Romans 8, His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are His children. 1 John gives five tests for the believer. There are all these tests, over 19 tests, clear tests in the New Testament that help you know if you're a Christ follower or not. This is not for them. How do we know that? Because what sin that you commit is unforgivable. Which sin is unforgivable? The sin that is unforgivable. Can God forgive all sins? Absolutely. If God can forgive uh, uh, murderers and, and people who willfully break the law, and if, if there is a sacrifice and mercy and grace for those who can be redeemed under all those conditions, if God can forgive sinners like me, what sin is unforgivable? In Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees are picking a fight with Jesus. And as they're picking a fight with Jesus, they're attributing the works of God to Satan. 
And Jesus gets into this back and forth. The parallel passage, I believe, is Luke 12. But as Jesus is getting into this back and forth in Mark chapter 3, He describes to them an unforgivable sin. Starting in verse 22 of Mark chapter 3. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem say, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them uh, to him and he said to them, Jesus called them to him and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. If Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds that strong man. Then indeed he may plunder that house. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, right? Every sin that men commit and women commit and children commit and people they are all forgivable. There's good news there. You can never out-sin the grace of God and as long as there's breath in your lungs, you can cry out for mercy. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, Verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Is this unforgivable sin? What is this? It's this Hebrews 10, 26, that if you hear the gospel and you reject it deliberately, walking away, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, where else will you find forgiveness for your sins? If not in Jesus, where else will you be forgiven? Where else will your sins be atoned for? Who else is sinless that can provide the substitute for your sins? There is nowhere else. There is no one else. And so the writer says there is no longer a sacrifice available. There's nothing else out there other than through Jesus that we can find forgiveness. Verse 27 There only remains a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In the Old Testament, in verse 28, he says, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Those are three signs of the apostate person. God offered them grace and mercy before judgment. And they said, no, thank you. I'll find another way. I'll do it my own way. They have outraged the spirit of grace. They have profaned the blood of the covenant and they have spurned the son of God. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. What do we do with this? Vengeance and punishment and anger and uh, all these outrage, all these words that we hear in this passage. People, People often say, why is the God of the Old Testament so angry and the God of the New Testament is so different? Keep in mind, the Old Testament covers a period of roughly 3,000 years. The New Covenant covers a period of roughly 30 years. 
60, maybe, if you include Revelation. But from the time Jesus began his ministry until uh, John was writing on the island of Patmos. So the, the, the period of time is considerably different. 23,000 years, 2,500 to 3,000 years, where God had all this opportunity to reveal himself over and over. He is consistently the same God in the Old Covenant as he is in the New Covenant. The sample size is different, and the period of time is different, and the grace expressed in the New Covenant is a smaller period, and it's the most full expression of grace that there, there will ever be. So what do we do with this God, and how do we cope with an idea of avenging God, a revengeful God? We ask questions like, why would a merciful, loving God also be a God of wrath and justice and punishment? How can we make sense of this? We often struggle with this. We often hear people who think they can improve on the justice of God. We often hear people that say, I, I could do a better job, and I, I don't agree with this part. I don't agree with hell and damnation and punishment and God who would take vengeance. We struggle with this. And ultimately, we have to believe that if we had 1% of all the knowledge there was to know in all the universe, just think about it, if you knew 1% of all there was to know, if I knew 1% of what was going through every one of your minds right now, <laughs> I can read your faces, um, but I don't know what's happening up there. But if, but if I had 1% of all the knowledge of every person and everything and every planet and every galaxy and every universe, if I just had 1% of all the knowledge there was to know, I would, I would be incredibly smart, right? But it would still leave 99% of that which I don't know. And so we have to understand that if there is an all-knowing, all-loving God who has that complete information, and if you could be in His position, you would do exactly what you're doing. Exactly what He's doing. You would, you would execute justice, and you would execute mercy, and you would execute love, and you would be exactly where you're supposed to be if you're trusting in a sovereign, righteous God as revealed in the Bible. So we can't improve on the justice of God. We can't out-God God. So to help us understand why he responds the way he does to those who deliberately stiff-arm him, we see in Matthew 21 this parable. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, he says, Hear this other parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and leased it out to tenants, and went into another country. This is clearly God who created the world and gave this parcel or this part to the nation Israel. He gave them everything they needed to bear fruit and for them to be a blessing to the world. Verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to those tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and they beat one, and they killed another, and they stoned another. Meaning all the prophets and all the people that proclaim the Word of God to God's people, they persecuted. Verse 36, again, He sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Verse 37, finally, He sent His Son to them, saying, they will respect My Son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Meaning they knew who he was. They loved the possession, but they didn't love the possessor. They, they, they recognized who he was, but they wanted the kingdom without a king. Come, this is the heir. Let's kill him and let's take his inheritance. 
And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. This is the crucifixion. This is those who say, I want heaven and I want blessings and I want God's presence and I want, I want all the good things, but I don't want to have to believe and I don't want to have to. And so this is those who come to Christ for these false motives. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? This gives us insight into the justice and vengeance of God. Verse 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and give the vineyard to other tenants who will bring fruit in season. Jesus said to them, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the Pharisees responded, verse 46, seeking to arrest him and ultimately to kill him. Why is God taking vengeance? Why is he punishing? Because if anybody sends somebody they love to people and those people crucify that son... God the Father, as the Father, loves Jesus as the Son. And anyone who rejects the only offer of mercy through the precious gift of Jesus Christ, God takes issue with that. How can anybody stand up and say, your only Son that you love, that you gave for me, I don't, I don't think He's valuable at all. I don't think he's worth my attention. I don't think he's worth my faith. I don't think he is worth following, putting my faith in him. And if you hear the gospel and go on sinning deliberately, that's exactly what you do. You spurn the Son of God. You reject the Spirit of grace. You outrage the Spirit of grace. So if you're hearing my words this morning, and you're not yet in Christ... This warning is for you. This may be the last time I ever preach Hebrews 10. Just in the way churches go, right? You pick a book, you go in it verse by verse. I listen occasionally to John MacArthur. The last sermon he preached out of these passages was from 1970, right? This, you think, well, good. I don't want to hear this again. But this may be the last time you hear this message from this text. I want to make it a good one, okay? Uh, but, But this may be it. So I want to help you hear clearly that there isn't another sacrifice if you reject this one. And so this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never placed your faith in Him, you say, well, I'm just not 100% confident in who He is. Listen, nobody with faith has 100% confidence. That's why it's faith. There's always an area in which it's unknown, and yet God calls you to Himself. In mercy and love, he says, take my hand, walk with me. There may be trials ahead. There may be difficulties ahead. Place your faith in me. I'll give you forgiveness of sins, grace, mercy, eternal life, my presence, a community of people to walk with. I know it's hard. Walking with Jesus is the greatest thing that can ever happen to a person. To be reunited with your Creator. To have all your sins paid for. This is why we follow Jesus. Because He loved us so deeply. 
And if you've rejected that love up until this point, if you're on the sidelines, looking in, considering, do I become a Christ follower or do I just fall into the way of the world? Let me urge you today to become a part of the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace. The sermon that's just been heard is evidence of your love. It's a clear warning. And in many, many people's hearts hearing this message, they, there's something that resonates as true. And I pray that you would grant them the faith to believe and to follow you. Lord, it pains us to see people walk away. It hurts us to watch people who were once worshiping with us no longer here. It pains us to see people reject you and to spurn your sacrifice and to reject your love. But for those hearing, there is still an opportunity to believe. I pray that they would not commit this blasphemy of the Spirit that attributes the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a work of Satan but that they would receive the gift to which you freely offer. That they would find life in you and assurance. I pray, Jesus, that you would work among us. We thank you for what you're doing around the world. We pray that you would continue your work among us today in Jesus' name.